There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 329. And today in the show, I'm joined by renowned conservation writer Hal Herring to discuss public land history and advocacy, wilderness, and an in-depth look at my book, That Wild Country. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx, and uh, welcome to the new year too. Happy new year to all of you, my friends. Today, we've got a special episode in which I am not the host. I am actually the guest. Now, how's that going to work? Well, I was recently interviewed on the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast, also known as the BHA Podcast and Blast, which is hosted by esteemed conservation writer, hunter, and angler Hal Herring. He hosts their podcast, and you might also know him as a longtime writer for Field and Stream. He just does great work. And he was kind enough to read my book, That Wild Country, recently, and invite me on their podcast to discuss it. Now, I know you've all heard me talk about my book on the podcast over the past couple weeks or months. I've asked you to buy it. I've given you the Cliff Notes version of what it's all about. But at least on this podcast, you know, we, we haven't really gone in depth into it. We haven't had any kind of real discussion about the book. I just kind of told you, hey, I wrote this book. It's called That Wild Country. It's about the history of public lands and my own journeys, blah, blah, blah. But we really haven't had any deep discussion on the themes of the book or the lessons I learned about public lands along the way, or the process of writing it, or you know any of the details about this whole topic of public land history and politics and advocacy, or any of my adventures or, or hunts or trips or anything that went on as part of this book. We haven't gone into any of that yet. And I think, maybe I'm biased here, but I think that's some really interesting stuff. And fortunately, Hale wanted to discuss all of that and more on the BHA podcast. And I just think it was such a good conversation that we needed to share it here on Wired Hunt as well. So that's what you're about to hear. You're about to hear an excerpt from the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast with Hal as host and me as guest. And this is obviously going to be a little bit different, uh, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you've read the book already, I think this is going to give you a really interesting new behind-the-scenes look at how the book came together and what I was trying to achieve with it and, and maybe give you a more in-depth understanding um, 
of, of what it all meant. And then if you haven't read the book yet, my hope is that this conversation is going to help you better decide if it's something you want to check out at all. So I do think if you love to hunt or fish or hike or camp or recreate on public lands of any kind, this is going to be a podcast for you. And if that also describes you at all, you should also strongly consider joining Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. They are one of the absolute most influential conversation, not, well, they're great at conversations, but they're also an influential conservation organization. One of the most influential out there in the country today, fighting on behalf of public lands and waters and, you know, our rights to hunt and fish and and explore these places. So I hope you'll join me in the fight to protect these places. And I think by tapping into BHA, it's a great place and a great way to start. So with all that said, let's take a quick break and then we'll hop over to my interview on the BHA podcast and blast with Hal Herring. Enjoy. Uh, hey, everybody, and welcome back, or welcome here if you've never been here before. Thanks for coming. This is Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Podcast and Blast. Um, I'm Hal Herring, and I am in Bozeman, Montana today. I caught up with uh, Mark Kenyon, who has a podcast of Wired to Hunt, and has just written a remarkable book that I've had in my hands for a month or so. Um, I reread it for, I read it once fast and reread it once slow for this interview and um i'm i'm uh, super pleased to be able to turn people on to it because um we'll talk about how how powerful i think it is but mark first you uh thanks for doing this for one thing oh thank you thanks for being here but thanks for writing that book it's called that wild country um will you identify yourself just a little bit yeah yeah so uh mark kenyon here like he said i wrote that wild country but previous to that uh i've ran a website and a podcast called wired to hunt which uh, as of 2018 i think is also part of meat eaters network now too gotcha um so yeah i've been writing first for digital stuff then for most of the hunting magazines and then for me to do it myself and launched the podcast then in 2014 and was doing all that full-time for a few years um until got to this point writing the book so i'm well a hunter angler love to do just about anything outside and, and you're a it. michigander by birth right yes michigander by birth uh Visitor of the West by by passion as often well, yeah, as possible. For sure, yeah. It, well, and in the book, it's like it's like a grand tour of the of the West too, and um, which is which we'll talk about like the, the how, how that works in the book. Yeah. But <clears throat> it is like a grand tour, and, and um, it's one one, and and you know what? It's an every man's tour too. There's nothing in this book that you do that anybody in the United States can't saddle up a, an old Ford and, and go do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Which is really, really cool. Um, but you you came at this, you were, you were a whitetail hunter first, right? Yep, that was what we kind of grew up on. We hunted a uh, little 40-acre piece that my grandpa bought in 1985, which was surrounded on two sides by public land. So I grew up going to our deer camp up north and then trudging across the public. Gotcha. Um, looking for big woods bucks. Yeah. And, uh, Is that Upper Peninsula or Northern Michigan? or Northern Lower. Gotcha. Yep. And, uh, below so, yeah, the bridge. Yes, below the bridge. So I'm a troll. Um, you're a troll. According yeah. to uh, the Ubers. <laughs> when, when, uh, when Jim Harrison stuff started coming out a lot, um, my friends and I are in Alabama, and we'd never, you know, we'd need, I'd never been to Michigan. The first place I ever went to Michigan was Kalamazoo as a grown man. Yep. But uh, 
My friends go, do you know what they call those people? And I said, what's that? <laughs> Trolls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they live below the bridge. That's that's, us. that's super cool. It is pretty fun. Yeah. But yeah, Michigander and grew up hunting deer and fishing for perch and walleye and pike and bass and all that. Yeah. Trolling around the lakes of uh, the western side of the state and did a little bit of hiking, camping, exploring along the way too. Yeah. And did, did you start out when you were young? Doing all this? Yeah. I mean, I think I was in the blind with my dad at age three or four. Right. Um, it was an interesting thing. We were very, um, my family was really into hunting and fishing from the cultural side. Like we identified as hunters and anglers. Like that gotcha. was a thing. Right. When we'd get together for family get togethers. We're all sitting there talking about hunting and fishing. Yep. Um, but we never, the, the family before we never took it so far as to, really go deep into strategy or really go so far as start going out west or anything so uh-huh. we, we forever the family loved to hunt loved to fish but it was always you did what you always did yep. you went and sat next to a tree yeah or you know walked out and you found a rub and you sat down that's what you did so that is was the extent of my hunting education until i kind of went off on my own and then had to self-educate to take things to the next level but right it, it developed this really foundational passion mm-hmm. was really the biggest thing i got for my family well, that's a really, to me, that, that actually the South is somewhat like that too, but that's a Midwestern thing where it's, it's everybody, I, the, some of the best fishermen and hunters I know have come out of the Midwest. Yeah. And it, and it's, they've, they've been there, they've been unquestioned in this pursuit, like since babyhood, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's not to say that all of them don't take it to that other level too. They do. You run into them all over the place. Yep. But, um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I, I can relate to that from growing up where people just went to the deer stand. It was very much uh, just steeped in tradition. Yeah. You know, it was the the cabin. Yeah. Go, go to deer camp. And yeah. No power, no water, just go out there, propane lanterns, and yeah. just getting away from it all. It was almost just about going to this. It was a pilgrimage to this place where your friends and family came back together every year and, 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 cool. and so much that revolves around that. But I remember at age, you know, six and seven and nine and 10, the thing I would always want to do is I'd go and stand out underneath the buck pole. You'd hang the deer that are shot yeah. hung on the buck pole. And I would just stand there staring at them thinking, wow, what an animal. What yeah. if someday I want to yep. head off into the woods on my own and be able to do that. Yeah. And, um, and so y'all had some success there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, we had success, relatively limited, um, and, and decline over the years, actually just deer populations plummeting in the 2000s uh-huh. in that part of the state, but, uh, but enough success to keep me interested as a kid. Right. And, sure. Um, to really just fill my imagination. Yeah. It's incredible to marvel at that. I, I rem- and I'm old enough to know, remember when they first came back to North Alabama mm. <clears throat> and they were just our idea of everything that ought to be out there in the woods. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, they're like, they made the woods. I remember my civics teacher who's helped me a lot in hunting and stuff. He, he said, you know, it just, it just blows my mind that there's these, there's these big woods left and there's these big old animals out there in it, just living their own lives. Well, what a, how lonely or tragic would it be to have a place like that without those big animals without, anymore? Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't it wouldn't feel right. Right. Right, you bet. Well, I was thinking about um <clears throat> like uh um Peter Matthias and I think when he wrote Wildlife in America, mm-hmm. he talked about that great American silence and then like <clears throat> and and how it probably well, it wasn't silent on the Great Plains. Right. During, you know, pre-Columbus. It was a uproar. It was it was an uproar. <sighs> yeah. I can't I and I'm sure so many people have said this over the previous 150 years, but I can't help 
but just wonder and imagine and dream about what that must have been like. Yeah. I go that. back to the journals list in Clark every mm-hmm. once in a while just to, just to think about that. And I, I go to Great Falls, Montana a lot. That's like our supply town. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'll go down and it, it's all dammed up, the falls and stuff like that. And someday I hope it'll run free. Maybe yeah. they could replace the power with a flow through or something. Sure. But um, we spend a lot of time on the river there. And uh, I, I, I think about that all the time. It's like, there's areas there where there were so many buffalo that died crossing the ice that the water would be contaminated way downstream. Yeah. And then wolves and grizzlies by the dozens and dozens just eating all the carrion. And And we were thinking about uh, Ohm Pishkin. Pishkin is, uh, I think it's Blackfeet for a buffalo jump. Okay. And Ohm, Montana, is a little town there on the Missouri, and it has a enormous buffalo jump. And an incredible state park there. Hmm. And, and I, I mean, anybody who wants to, is coming through great, Helena to Great Falls on a trip it would be Check that out. well advised to stop. Huh. And uh, that place, we, we were imagining when they, this was pre-bow mostly, pre-horse. And um, when that was rocking, when they're running those buffalo over that, and the little kids are hiding with the, they had these, these hides they pick up to startle the buffalo. Yeah. And when that was rocking, we were thinking like every grizzly, every eagle, Every wolf, I mean, I mean, imagine the scene. what the scene was, and then all the people, because they just moved there until they had it all processed. Right. Yeah. Un, unimaginable. Yeah. Carrying obsidian knives that are made from stuff that's, uh, it's quarried down to Yellowstone. Yeah. Carried it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so interesting. I just read an interesting book examining, um, you know, the, the Clovis and Folsom cultures and, and kind of everything that was going on during the Pleistocene area. Era. Cool. And uh, just talking about how how so many of the tools were uh, imported in yep. from very specific places. They would make pilgrimages to you a bet. different place, like to, to Knife Lake in northern Minnesota to yep. get a certain type of stone. And from, to this location, this yep. location, then you see them coalesce in certain regions where then all the people came to for yeah. these And then trade. Yeah. Yeah. Just really interesting yeah, there, I think there's a quarry learning. at Montana City near Helena. Okay. That, that is, you know, it's as old as anybody can date back everybody's changing those dates right. now there's ten thousand years ago and then they're going wow this is 12 mm-hmm. you know but fascinating stuff it's it's incredible stuff and i and if, if nobody has ever if anybody's never seen the clovis stuff they're huge <laughs> yeah, i've never seen them in person i'd like uh, yeah, to there's some in the museum in helena That's... um that and they're big they're for chopping like mammoths yeah. and giant sloths Different kind and, of game. Yeah. And they're the only art that survives is this they they took these multicolored stones and they chipped them. They had somebody who was an insane artisan, you know, mm-hmm. and they would, and they had these multicolored bands in the stone. And, and we don't know what their art was, but clearly this was their art because they put it in the burial site on, wow. on um, it's called the Anzic site up by Wilsall, Montana. Okay. Yeah. And there's a, there's these two children buried in that and they're covered with red ochre and they have the, like the best of the best choppers and, huh. and scrapers. So you wonder what the, what their status was or what yep. awarded them that kind of burial. Something, yeah. Huh. Somebody found them, like, looking for uh, hunting gravel with a front-end loader. Wow. Yeah. Well, well saw. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice little area over there. It's pretty country. I Apparently, like it's always been pretty nice. I guess so, yeah. Man. Beautiful <laughs> yeah. valley. Yeah. So, um, as a Michigander, you you started coming west. Obviously, in this book, you started, like, like 12 or... Well, you came west as a, as a kid, right? We, a did, child. we did two trips west as a child when I was, I don't remember, it was like six or seven or seven or eight, and then one more like two years later. Um, 
one trip we did the northwest. We hit Mount Rainier National Park, northern North Cascades, and Olympia, Olympic, sorry. And then uh, the second was to Glacier, and those just became foundational in my childhood imagination. Uh-huh. We never went back. I wish we had, but I think families got busy and all sure. that kind of stuff. Um, it's hard to it, do. Yeah, you, 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 you got a toddler, right? Yes, yes, yeah. I've got a toddler now. So yeah, yeah it's it's not easy, but uh, but that had this. I don't know. It, it just lingered in me forever. So ever yeah. since that, I always dreamed of going back, of wanting to get into this big wild country, doing, doing something above and beyond what I did growing up, which was yeah. fun, but relatively domestic hunting and fishing kind of adventure. Sure. Go out to the lake with the boat, that kind of thing. And everything you grow up with seems domestic to you by the time so. you're 18. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, it wasn't until I actually, uh, you know, kind of went off on my own and, and finished off the craziness of college that I started making my own pilgrimages out West and, uh, did the first one, did a three week trip when I was heading out towards my full-time job in California that I took out of college. And we took, took three weeks to go and experience these things. And, and that's when I realized, wow, this is, I mean, as, as anyone who has done that same trip or experienced that same thing comes to understand, this is something really special. And ever since then, I've been trying to spend more and more time of my year uh, exploring public lands out west, and yeah. I've gotten to uh, very lucky with my career that I get to spend significant amount of time for a midwesterner at least. Yeah, well, and and what did you study in college? Uh, marketing business, yeah. um, and took a job working for a tech company doing online advertising and marketing. Um, that was that's where it started. For yeah, me. and uh, there's yeah. a that's a great part of the book mm. too. Um, is to it, it's it's your personal journey. Like where you said, like that's that was great, but but you wanted something different at some point. And you took a big risk. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, coming out of college, I had I had a little bit of, and, and you tell me if this is not what you want to talk about because I I could get rambling if I'm not careful, but I'll try to make it as short as I possibly can. I thought I wanted to get into business and be this big businessman. Took an internship in New York City. Realized. Oh, that's not what I want. I couldn't hunt. I couldn't fish. Couldn't get outside to do the things I wanted to do. So I said, yeah. okay, there's. I've got to find a way to, to, to link my passion for the outdoors with what I do. But then my last year of college, I got wooed by, by everything that is Google. This company sure. came in and, and I was seduced by the allure of working for a company like that, which, which ended up being great. But so I took that job and, and ignored what I'd learned the previous summer, but immediately upon getting out to California, what did you, you ignored what you learned in New York city. Exactly. I got you. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I told myself I will, I'm going to work somehow related to the outdoors or Google because Google just couldn't say <laughs> right. no to that. And so sure. I got that job. And um, immediately, though, that fall, I'm working in Mountain View, California at the, at the headquarters there. And right away, I felt that claustrophobia again. I felt that just uh, lack of oxygen. Uh-huh. And so it was, I don't remember, October probably of 2009. And I read a book. I went to Barnes & Noble and was looking for books. And I found this book. It was called Crush It. And it was all about combining your passion with um with your vocation someday and i, I actually the, remember that book yeah. yeah i closed the book and i said that's what i'm doing and i started right then working on this thing that became wired to hunt and i said i'm not going to stop working on this until i'm able to do this for a living and for my life well wow. and uh and that led me to where i am now and this is probably not <laughs> the extraneous to but did you know about podcasting then that early um i was aware of podcasting but uh, and i actually listened to a couple podcasts back then i remember um Peterson's bow hunting had a mm-hmm. podcast at that point that early. And then there was oh. another one called Bowcast, I think. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to those back then. Um, but I didn't 
I didn't realize that I should create my own for several years. Yeah. Um, but actually it was the, the tools or the resources that helped me the most to build my own company and my own brand and allow me to take that stepping stone or that, that jump off the cliff. Um, it was podcasts. I was listening to all these entrepreneurial podcasts and things. And that kind of gave me the, um, the skill set and just the confidence that, Oh wow, people are doing this. Yep. This is a thing you can do. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. So I quit, I quit Google in the fall of 2013 and, and went for it. Wow. And you went back to Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was only in California for four or five months at headquarters. And then, um, we have, we had an office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so that's where I worked for the remaining three and a half years. Gotcha. Um, and so did yeah, you, great experience. Did you, are you a self-taught writer? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And just read a lot. Try. Yeah. That's, and that's what I tell everybody yeah. too. When people ask me, because, because yeah. then you can write, look at a paragraph of yours and say, mm, yeah, okay. Or this clearly doesn't stand up. Yes. Because, it's... because I read, I just read, um, Rick Bass or yeah. we, you refer to in your book, but yeah. And, and that's setting the bar too high, right? Yeah. But that's, that's how I, I feel like most people can write. You yeah, just have to read. I just, I'm a voracious, insatiable reader. I love, gotcha. love, 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 love books. So I read and read and read. And once I started writing for my website, I realized that I wanted to become as good of a writer as I possibly could because I found a tremendous amount of satisfaction in sharing and, and writing. So then started reading books about writing and reading with a writer's eye. And so right. when I read something, I'm thinking to myself, why is this so compelling? Right. Why does this move me from page to page to page? How did I learn something here and not even realize it? Right. Um, or what don't I like about this book? Right. And right. so, and so that's how I, how I learned to write. Um, and, and hopefully like, like you said, I have this tremendous sense of, of like that imposter syndrome. So mm -hmm. as I'm writing the book, I'm like, there's no way this could be as good as Steve's book or Rick's book or mm -hmm. such and such as book. Um, but you just try your very best to just get something on the page and then you pound your head against the wall over and over again, trying to rewrite and rewrite and fix right. and fine tune. And, and then eventually you have to say, I did the best I possibly could yep. in this moment as I am right now. And you just have to put it out there in the world. Yep. And, uh, and that's what we did. Yeah. And yeah, there's an athletic uh, analogy there too, is leaving it all on the field. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I think people, I think a reader can, there's there's a supernatural element in here, and it's like my friend, who he's a diamond miner. Someday I hope to get him on a podcast, but he's, uh, he just, he people say he has supernatural abilities to find stuff, but the truth is, he says, I, I don't. I just, I just look for stuff to, to a thousand times more than anybody else does. Yeah. And so you, you, you end up, and, and then you, you start finding that you can do these things. Yep. Or Malcolm Gladwell talks about the three thousand hour rule yeah, or the ten thousand yep. repetition rule. Um, that's true in jujitsu, right? Yep. And, anything and in anything, right? Guitar playing, but you have to have an incredible passion for it in order to do it ten thousand yeah. times. Very rarely is it this just like gift from heaven that flows no. down through your right. fingers right. easily. It's, it right. seems like uh, we have that assumption when you think of great artists or writers or whatever pursuit it might be, we assume they must have something that we don't. Right. But they probably don't. It's, right. It's just, like you said, having the passion, the right. willingness to work for a long time. Sure. And, or you uh, could be uh, like me and be utterly unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> As a tree planter and a timber thinner, you know, yeah. and a trail builder, eventually you got to find something yeah, you, else. You made something work. Yeah. <laughs> you figured yeah. it out. But it, um, I can tell you, so when you're saying this book can't be as good as, as Rick Bass or whatever, the book is, the book is extraordinary. And, Thank and, it's, you so much. and I, I wouldn't, I, I would, I would take a different tack if I didn't really think that. <laughs> um, I just, it is just, you did it. 
and um, it's it's a uh, as we were, we were talking about a little bit before we started. Um, one of the things you managed to do is is something that we need right now more than we've ever needed it before, which is to understand how we got the incredible things we have. Yeah, and you have managed to teach in this book, and, and the word would be to be didactic, right? But as Jim Harrison wrote, he goes, but you better hide it. He goes, everybody <laughs> wants to teach, right? Yeah. It, because you feel like you got something to relate, mm-hmm. but you better give people a story what they want and an adventure front, yeah. and not be putting on a little professor hat and, and banging on the, by hitting them with a stick, you yep. know? And one of the things you did in here is you have, you have in it, and it looks effortless, which it always does when you do it right. But you have given us this history that we cannot do without. I promise. Uh, that, that, that is the, the greatest compliment that I could ever ask. Well, that's for. what we're looking down. I mean, this um, is what I was hunting. Um, and I just, I was reading it and I was like, you have the history. You, you even go far afield from just public lands and do like, how did we restore the wildlife? You've yeah. got Pittman Robertson, you've got Dingle Johnson in here, and they're all inside a narrative of you out in the field going to one incredible place after another. Yeah, well, what kind of inspired me to do this was that, as, as I alluded to earlier, I started heading out west, I started exploring public lands, I started hunting for elk and going to, to this place or that place. And then in 2014 and 15, then the land transfer movement starts picking up steam and I'm starting to see, okay, these places that I've developed this tremendous love for and that I'm going out and spending every ounce of vacation time I have to see. And every time I leave Michigan, I want to dive in these places. Now I'm realizing they're threatened and I'm trying to understand that. Yeah. And during that whole period of time, I had this realization I don't understand how we got here. I don't, yeah. I, I'm hearing these words like sagebrush rebellion, or I'm hearing about this person or that person. Right. I, I don't understand the context of the now. Right. And if I don't know that, and I worked in the hunting world, the right. outdoor world, if I don't know that a lot of other people probably don't too. And then I start asking friends and family around me in the Midwest and elsewhere. And I realize they don't even know we have these places, let alone how we got there. Right. So I realized there's this huge information gap. Um, so I started trying to learn myself. And then once I did that, I realized, oh, there is information out there. Yep. But it's in these dusty old textbooks. There's yep. these dense not dense his, history books yep. that the average person will never read. Right. Um, so I thought, well, I'm not a, a professional conservationist. I'm not a historian. I'm none of these things. I don't live out west. Um, I haven't been involved in these things for decades. Who am I to try to write a book about this? But I, I, I came to terms of the fact that I am the target market that needs this. I am the person. There are so many other people just like me in Michigan or New York or Florida or Georgia or Wyoming or Montana who don't know the context, who don't know how we got here, who maybe are unaware of of even this amazing heritage that we have. So if I could write something from that perspective for those people, that could do some good maybe. Yeah. Um, And do it in a way, like you said, that, doesn't feel stodgy and slow it's, and dense. No, it's, it's in an adventure, you know. Mm. Um, and when I did, when I studied writing, Kim Barnes, who wrote a great book called In the Wilderness, she told me, you you got to give people 80% scene if you want to give them 20% exposition. <laughs> yeah. She said, somebody wants to take a trip with you. Yes. They don't want to be lectured to. Yeah. But, but, and she said, that formula, actually, you, you got it. It's, it's in this book, by the way, which you did unknowingly probably, but that's the way you tell a story, yeah. right? Um, and uh, 
I've, I've never found that to fail. You can push it. She said it was like taking, putting money in the bank with like a story and adventure and scene yes. and then taking money out of the bank when you're trying to teach somebody something yep. or give them some facts. Exactly. And um, you, you nailed that in this. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth we've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go but here's one product that stood the test of time seafoam motor treatment lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer and it's really simple when you pour it into your gas tank seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Look, um, one of the things I also, when you're saying you are the target market, you're the target audience, you mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And so, that, the book also works as an exploration where you are, you are going to learn these things as yeah. a person who loves something but doesn't know enough about it. Exactly. But I'd also say that you're you, and I think this is a where we are in Bozeman right now. With, like where we are with people all over the United States, where we are with BHA too. Yep. And um, and I've just come around to this reluctantly lately. We are the man in the arena that Roosevelt talked about, and we definitely include all our sisters in that too. The man or the woman in the arena. Absolutely. Um, and because we love something so much, the onus is upon us to reach a hand out to somebody and say, hey, man, let me, let me tell you a story. Yeah, that's 100% true. And that's, um, I, I, I've, I've told this story a few times or explained this, but basically I've had this career trajectory too where I went from, could I do this thing? Could I write about hunting and, and someday be able to make a little bit of money from it? And then eventually I was able to do that. And then it was this dream of maybe I could someday do that as my career. Yeah. And I was able to do that. And then it was maybe I could be able to pay for my mortgage and pay for Spotify. Or right, sure. Right. And maybe, have a truck that starts. Exactly. Right. So maybe That's I could what, do yeah. that. And then and eventually it got to a point though where I realized, okay, what's what are my next goals? Where am I going with this? What um what do I, what do I want to be when I grow up? Yeah. And I, I had this shift from just being able to like make it or to make some money or whatever to be able to love what I do to how do I make a positive difference? Like, how do I do something right. that matters? Right. And it was right around that same time that I, this whole situation was brewing in the war, in the, in the country and then in myself. And I thought this is, this is that something you could do that maybe could, could matter. Yeah. And as you describe in the book, you're on a trip 
when the when the Bundy occupation of Malheur comes up. Yes. And and um the there's some incredible journalists covering that. Amanda Peacher at OPB, Oregon Public mm-hmm. Broadcasting. Yeah. I mean, I was just glued to that for a while, you know, mm-hmm. and um they they were they were very well informed, unlike many of the journalists who showed right. up there and listened to whatever they said and took it at face value. Right. But um you were you were actually put onto this and I and I go back, I found Terry Anderson's report called How and Why to Privatize All Federal Lands Now <laughs> in 1999. Wow. And 1999 was kind of a watershed moment for me because I had been in the West for 10 years, 11 years. Okay. And I was just like, I was just hunting the Missouri breaks. I was just learning like the, the, the epic vastness of, of BLM lands um, out, you know, clear to eastern Montana, yeah. clear over to, to uh, eastern Oregon. And I was, I was really reveling in this stuff. And my kids were being born at, right at the same time. Yeah. You and I had that moment. Yeah. And, and it, was, it, it was like, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You realize, wow, this stuff isn't guaranteed, or this stuff isn't. And we should have known that yeah. in a world of seven billion people, that yeah. people aren't going to give free, let you run around free on their on your own land. You know, it's very easy to take it for granted, though. It, everybody, it, and it's, they still do. Right. I mean, I mean, I have people that talk to me about saying, and and I swear, I I, I would swear that there's no. They don't know what the federal government does, mm-hmm. but they despise the federal government so much that they would give away their own land yeah. in an act of, like, what? Out- anger? Like taking a chainsaw. It's not cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's like cutting off your head with a saw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, I can't. And you go, I showed them. Mm-hmm. I can't explain that, but can't. it is very yeah. present out there, that's for sure. Yeah. But to your point, I mean, there is just so... There's just, just as today we are many, many f- people and at various times in our lives, maybe we are divorced from the natural world, diverse from where we got our food yeah. as hunters, we try to reconnect there. I think the same thing applies to our land. Yeah. It's, it's for a lot of folks, for me growing up, it was just, oh, we crossed the ditch and that's public land yeah. and that's where you and dad go hunt. And right. uncle Steve hunts on the West side of the public land and you and dad hunt on the north side, yeah. and, and I never gave it a second thought. Yeah. Never wondered how we got that. Never gotcha. wondered how Glacier National Park came to be and why I could have this moment where my dad and I walked over the hill and a hundred elk ran across the river, and right. I was mesmerized by it, and I can still see that scene in my, yeah. in my mind right now. I never thought about what it took for me to have that transformational moment when I was 10 years old. Right. Um, when but, you talk about the Lamar Valley in here and that and, oh, yeah. and fishing, it's Lamar yeah. Creek, right? Well, uh, Slough Creek. Slough Creek, Creek, yeah. And just being able to see every everything on the bottom. Yeah. Like when, and you know, like how do you get that, right? Yeah. You know? It's, it's like, really easy to just to just enjoy that thing for what it is right now, which is good. You which should is enjoy good, it. right. That's what we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah, you yeah. want to enjoy the present. But every once in a while, it's worth taking a step back and, and looking at the bigger picture. Sure. Um, and That's I, that Ed, Ed Abbey who is, infuses your book too um, in a good way. But Ed Abbey said had, had that I don't know the whole quote, but he said, "Be a half-hearted fanatic." Oh, I love that. And quote. never forget. I know what you're talking yeah, about. He's yeah. like, get out there and do the yeah, stuff. Yeah, and still. do the stuff. Be a yeah. half-hearted fanatic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely has has influenced some of my my thoughts and and writing. Sure. Um, we were talking about um, that. I read him in high school. I was lucky in the. 
<clears throat> my father was a fan of that movie, Lonely Are the Brave, mm, okay. which is Kurt Douglas is this ultimate like anarchist cowboy. And um, he, it's, it's kind of, a, I, it's still a good movie, um, but it's kind of didactic and um, as, as like freedom and anarchy and cowboys sure. and all, but uh, it's a good movie. And, and it's based on a Edward Abbey's second novel or first novel, oh. Brave Cowboy. Okay. It's um, worth reading. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. Is that the one that starts off with um, this cowboy that just, and that just a guy that kind of walks or rides his horse up to a little town and gets off his horse, walks into a house. Yep. Um, that's I, it. I've yeah. read the first couple chapters and yeah. I haven't, I haven't it's finished not, it. But... It's not. It's a clunky book. Is it? Yeah, but it but it's good. Um, I mean, it's got a lot of thumbprints mm-hmm. as Ed Abbey becomes the desert solitaire writer yeah. and, and the and the fool's the fool's progress was one yes. of my favorite novels. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's it's worth going back and revisiting some of that, well, especially as a writer because you can see how much better he got. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's a heck of a writer, and and I I we were just talking earlier how I, how I like these two different approaches to to talking about something like public lands or conservation within this book even um part of me really wanted this theme and this this idea and this i personally think a lot about the fact that we need to find ways to work together to find compromise to reach a hand across the aisle or across the from cabela's to rei or whatever it might be and say hey let's look past some of our differences and, and stand up for these things we have a shared love for um or sometimes you need to have a, a moderate way of going about things. Yep. And then other times you need to channel your inner at Abbey and, and burn the house down yep. and have some piss and vinegar. And he yep. was always, I mean, he was a very controversial figure, a very yep. passionate figure. He didn't have a, a middle gray area. He was black and white. Yep, for um, sure. To a fault, probably in some ways. In but some I, ways. I, I think we're, I, I think we all live in our time mm-hmm. and, um, some of it, of course, sometimes you you live in the wrong time and it doesn't it doesn't right. catch fire, yeah. right? But he caught fire because it was the time for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think maybe that that time will come again if it's not here now. I do yeah. know it's here in in some ways. People need to become passionate and active yeah. activists. But your book, I was going to say, you could have seen this. You could have written this book as a shot across the bow mm-hmm. of the American Lands Council and the American Legislative Exchange, yep. whatever it is. You know, yep. um, you could have written that as a as a direct attack, and you did not. The book is less a shot across the bow than a tap on the shoulder, and a let's 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 talk here. Let's let me tell you a story. Yeah, and I love that. Yeah, I hope it. I hope that's something that resonates with other people too. Cause I, I just, I wanted it to be accessible. Yep. I wanted it. I didn't want to turn people off before they could get through it. Yeah. Well, you, 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 you got to earn their trust before mm-hmm. you can give them a polemic. Yeah. And you did not do the polemicist role here. You didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Stegner was a very, you, and so that's where your title came mm-hmm. from, right? Yep. Let me read that quote. It's such a good one. It's we simply need that wild country available to us even if we never do more than drive to its edge and look in, for it can be a means of reassuring ourselves of our sanity as creatures, a part of the geography of hope. Holy smokes. Yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't beat that. And that's where you took your title, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, was, I was between the geography of hope or that wild country for the title. Gotcha. And I, I think there'd been an essay called The Geography of Hope from mm-hmm. that same title. So mm-hmm. I decided to try to go this route. But yes, tremendously influenced by... Uh, the words of Stegner and, and he's a, and Stegner was a moderate. Yeah, and it, he, yeah. It, it's uh, there's a book called The Wild Within. You okay, read that by Don't. David Gessner. Yes, 
And I, I, yes, it's Edward Abbey and Stegner. Yes. yes. So it looks at this. It, it's so interesting. They they represent those two things I just talked about, those two sides of the coin, yep. the, the two approaches to this. They gotcha. both loved public land. They both loved the West. They both had a fiery passion for it, but they approached it in very different ways. Yeah. And, and it's... It's how I personally try to approach it too. I want some Ed Abbey in me, and I want some Stegner. Some Stegner, yeah. Um, and and tried to somehow bring that to life yeah. within the pages yeah. here. The firebrand and 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 the diplomat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ed Robertson sent me that book. Yeah, yeah. He's yes. a friend of Gessner's. Yeah, he's a good guy. I just you know, just chatted with him a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I just that's that was the first I'd heard of that book, and I, I was I, I've been carrying it around, reading at it. As I go. I like it. It's a good yep. book. Yeah. It's a good well, book. it's perfect for this, what you're talking about. Yep. There is a um kind of a synch- synchronicity. I, I think the police kind of ruined that term for me, the, the band, you know. <laughs> yeah. But there's a kind of synchronicity yeah, in all this, that. you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but uh, so in, in all this, you were, you start, let's just talk about how you, you did this. So yeah. you decided to start with the... Yellowstone National Park, yep. and you decided to go ahead and 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 take the national parks and the BLM and the Forest Service all together, which is which is bold. Yeah, well, I, again, it came down to for me just early on. I didn't know that there are all these different branches of public land or all these different ways that it's broken down and managed and used. And and so for me, for someone to have a basic foundational understanding of public lands and, and public land history, we had to at least define that, hey, there are these different things. Yep. You talk to a, a friend of mine in Detroit, and they've got no clue what the BLM is. No. Or the, I think when a lot of people think, oh, America's public lands, it's Yellowstone National Park. Yep. I'm like, oh, that's it. Well, so many um, times I've heard people go, well, they can't do that. They can't log there. That's a national park. Right. And I was like, no, 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 that's a national forest. It's been like providing logs for, you know, 100 years. Yeah. And they're going, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's just so many gaps. And it is confusing. Yeah. So, so what I yeah. kind of wanted to do is is um go on a series of trips that both fit naturally with the historical narrative that I wanted to share, but also in a certain way represent the larger picture of what our public lands were. So I tried to visit a varied um array of places different types of regions, different types of public lands. Right. So I had some BLM trips. I had national park trips. I had national forests. I had wilderness area. Right. Um, I had wild, wildlife refuge. And so I wanted to use those opportunities to also slip in the the vegetables of information yep. naturally as we went along. So as, as you as you follow my own adventures through all these different places, doing all sorts of different things too, um, you naturally learned about the differences. You yep. naturally learned about how these things fit into the progression of our public lands from, you know, the original idea of, of something like a national park or national forest all the way to a wilderness yep. um, and what that means today. Yep. And um, how we got it. I mean, yeah. I mean that, that uh, the chapter where you introduced like the, the battles over wilderness itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are some of my favorites because you, um, I've been at this a long time. And you brought stuff like the U regulations and all this stuff, and yep. with and they're the vegetables, right? right with, but, the vegetables. but they went down good. <laughs> good, thank um, goodness. <laughs> but that was stuff that I'm not. I, I had to go back and look at that. I, yeah. I did not. Do you've got stuff in here that is a? It's a deep dive without with with plenty of oxygen. Yeah, I got you. I got to tell you, I'm I'm you know, for anybody who wants to inform themselves painlessly. Of this, this this book is is extraordinary. 
That's great. And it's and yeah, we needed it. I wow. mean, that's, I mean, I was I wanted to get down here and, and do this podcast in part just to, to talk to you about the process of this, you know. Um, yeah. And it and it's it's it re it's, it it establishes you as an author, but also as a hunter conservationist. Yeah. This this book is is is, I mean, a person who doesn't hunt will read this book, no problem. And that that's a great point you brought up that is was one of the foundational things coming into this project that I want to do as well. I talked earlier about wanting to bridge those divides. Yeah. I wanted this book not to be just a hunting book. Right. Right. I mean, when people would identify me, like I'm probably a hunter first and yep. foremost, other than a father and a husband, yep. I'm a hunter. Yep. Um, but I also love all these other things. Yep. And I wanted something that would be accessible and interesting to all outdoor users because yep. I think all outdoor users need to come together for these places. Right. And we got to find ways to, to work hand in hand on some of this. And so I wanted something that, again, wouldn't turn people off, but also hopefully come out of this maybe with a different perception of hunting too. Sure. Um, and, and maybe the reverse as well. Maybe a hunter right. would read this and maybe feel a little bit different about a backpacker. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I have backpacking trips. I have pack rafting trips. I have hunting trips. Right. I have fishing trips. Uh, a little bit of everything in here because I, I, I wanted this to reach an audience of diverse peoples because I think this this message of public lands is really important for all those people. It is. It um, is. And it's, and it, and we, we tend to get hung up in the inside baseball of, of mountain biking or e-bikes or mm-hmm. all this stuff, you know, whereas most of the people that we talk to, most people we know, especially for me in the South, they don't, they're not, they don't care about what right. their mountain bikes can be on the Missouri breaks. They don't even know right. where that is or why they can go there and enjoy it. Yeah. And um, I tell people about the catfishing on the Missouri, you know, and they're and they're super interested in that. And right. I'm going, that's the CM Russell Wildlife Refuge. And they go, what's that? You know, is yeah, that the you, feds? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to kind of find though these. Like you, you, you mentioned it earlier with um, uh, I can't remember how you phrased it, but you have to find different create different doorways for people to come into something yep. like this. Yep. And so for some people, maybe it's, oh, it's there's some hunting in there. That's yep. my doorway. And I'm yep. going to read it because I know Mark hunts or whatever. Yep. But maybe that the doorway for somebody else might have been, well, I don't know. I see he's a hunter, but he does a bunch of backpacking. Yep. I'm into that kind of thing. And then right. they come into it. Or maybe it's something else. Yeah. But if, if we can get them in the door and through this this journey, yeah. hopefully they come out of it with this with a positive idea about hunting and hunters and anglers and they learn something or maybe a hunter. I mean, I don't know. I I just would, at least for me, that's the way I would like to go about my work is with, with open arms and say, Hey, join the family. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not the person who wants to say, well, you're not just like me. Get out of here. No. And and we've talked about this before, but it's like, you don't want everybody to be the same or everybody agreeing or walking in lockstep. Right. Um, and and you treat people with a lot of respect in this. And I, and I've learned something from reading this book actually, because I was getting less and less objective (laughs) about the Utah contingent. And, and that's this, it's, continuous assault on every aspect of public lands and and this vaguely couched hatred of of really the way our country is now where everybody has a say and um i was um i was getting less and less objective and as i read this i realized that that i've been in the west probably too too long right (laughs) i've been and uh and your approach here was much more balanced and it the truth is is everybody does they they do we need those voices at the table 
Yeah. Okay, those voices can't go to the president and demand whatever and get it. I don't want that. Yeah. But but I'm I, I won't I never want to be the kind of person who doesn't shake hands and listen. Yeah. Well, that's and I say this in the book. One of the one of the things that's most frustrating about public lands, but also what makes them so unbelievably special, is that they are multi-use. It is that there's a lot yep. of different stakeholders with very different ideas about how to manage them, right. how to use them, and that can be. A huge pain in the ass sometimes. It and is that, a pain I mean, in the ass. They can drive us nuts. Yep. But, great, great things are come with the pain in the ass. Yes. Yes. And so that's this like inherent and is never going to change. Right. Hopefully. Right. In that I hope it never gets pulled way the other direction. Right. Um, but that is going to be that tug of war that's going to continue for the next fifty years or hundred years, hopefully hundreds of years. Yep. That we can keep these places around and viable. Yep. Um, that's a reality that we could either point a finger at and say, this is horrible and complain about it. Or we can say, this is the reality we live in. How yep. do we work within that box? Right. How do we do this in a way that's positive for the you know, the greatest good for the greatest number? Yeah. Um, and so I've always kind of approached things from like the rational standpoint there, but it's also really easy to, to have the emotional visceral feeling of frustration and concern. And I also believe that, it, you know, there's the Leopold quote that the, the downside of a, ecological education is that you live in a world of wounds. That's right. And I think the same thing exists for someone who pays attention to public land yep. issues. Yep. Is the more you pay attention to this stuff, the more you see this being cut away at and this being attacked and these little things that yep. fly underneath the radar. Well, you talk about the deep, what mm -hmm. Randy Newberg calls, uh, you didn't use this phrase, but defund and decry. Right. We're cutting the budgets for the BLM and now we're going to tell everybody that, holy smokes, these people don't do nothing. Yeah, exactly. You know, why don't we just do something else with the land? Exactly. And, you know, and, and uh, that I think that that's a really good part in this book, too, because it's that's something that unless you're really paying attention, you don't get that mm -hmm. part. Yeah, Forest that, Service, death by a BLM, thousand cuts. death by a thousand cuts until yeah. finally or and, and you managed to get this in there, too, or we industrialize the landscape so completely that nobody wants it. What's the point of protecting it? Because it's a piece yeah, of junk. Yeah, we've already ruined it. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah, so you know, that's the tricky thing is is you have to. It 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 could become if you if you pay attention, you want to pay attention. We we want people to be engaged in this. There's also though, and I'm, I imagine you've experienced this because you've been in it longer than I have. But there's probably a tendency to either get so upset with things that you either become bitter or you become apathetic, mm -hmm. where you say throw your hands up and say what can I do? And I I think what at least what I learned from this from learning and, and, and dissecting the stories of so many people who were part of this history was that regardless of how oftentimes we might feel that we're not in control or that we can't influence things, the people that did were the ones who said, damn it, I'm still going to put my foot down. I'm still yep. going to do the little thing I can yep. do. Um, and those things add up. Yep. And, and, you know, we, we've seen a few things recently that I think are encouraging that show, hey, we still have a voice. We yep. still can make a difference. And yep. then you can look back 50 years ago and see how people had a voice then and influenced real change. And, yeah. you know, we're benefiting from it now. So we are. We are the beneficiaries of some insanely difficult decisions and hard work. Yeah. Um, and Roosevelt, and you, you really bring in Ed, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in here, too. Um, mm -hmm. Ed Robertson mentioned to me, he said, I, I about your book, I had no idea how much Franklin Roosevelt did on public lands issues yeah. following the Dust Bowl, yeah. you know, um, and so much of that, that can make me very angry, I'll tell you, because there was a lot of land saying that I know 
really well in eastern Montana. Yeah. Who were basically homesteaded, destroyed, not out of no not out of malice. Yep. Just people trying to make it, right? Yeah. In a place that they couldn't. And then abandoned. Yeah. Those lands then were taken back by the federal government under the Bankhead Jones Act yep. and restored. Yeah. So much of it was restored. And now we have people saying, Well, we want those. Yeah. And, and you're, I'm looking at him, I'm like going, dude, you got to go back to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and <laughs> yeah. you got to come up with that $6 million in gold or whatever it was we paid after yeah. the Mexican War, yeah. and then you're going to have to fight. But you're going to have to, you're, you can't have the American people's legacy. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's, there's so much in there and so easy to, to never be able to wrap your head around. Right, it, it is. Came, it's came super about. hard. Yeah. So, so it was tricky to try to figure out a way, how do you distill a, a Titanic ship full of information into a few anecdotes and a handful of key points? You're right. Um, but yeah, FDR was one of those characters who I had no idea previously yeah. what an influence he had. And what I liked about um, how he handled things, at least in regards to some of these public land decisions, was that he from what I understood and from what I've read and seen is that he'd never try to position himself as the arbiter of what was right mm -hmm. or as being the expert on how these things should be handled. He seemed to take a much more, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? A delegatory approach uh -huh. and that he would reach out to the experts. So he, he brought in Gifford Pinchot. Yep. Guide me, Gifford. He yeah. brought in Bob Marshall and said, hey, yeah. tell me what you're seeing on the ground. Yeah. Where do we need to go? He listened to the Leopolds and the Marshalls. And um, I think that led to some decisions being made that really helped us out in the long run. Right. Um, but also, I mean, right there, you look at the debates between FDR and Anna Marshall about wilderness, right? Yeah. Uh, President Franklin Roosevelt was much more in favor of more development, True. more roads, yep. more of that. Yeah. Um, and he had, you know, Good reasons for something. Yeah, of that. you have an interesting part in here. It's the road through the Smokies or through the Blue Ridge. Yeah, yeah, through the Smokies. They're gonna gotcha. run a road right through a ridge through what's now the national park, so that more people could enjoy it. Right, that and from some one approach that could make sense. Sure, but then um, I still hear that about the Bob Marshall. By the way, right? Oh, jeez. Yeah, geez. yeah. Um, there, I I can't remember where I read it. I think maybe it was in this book I just finished called "The Only Kayak." Mm -hmm. um, but the guy said, "There's when you're when you're talking about this topic." At some point, more access becomes excess, mm -hmm. and there's a there's a really fine line. Access is important, but it can very quickly become excess. Yeah, and um, and that was this debate raging in the 30s and 40s when the CCC was building new campgrounds and roads right. and uh, fire towers, all these different things, which right. were viewed as progress and great by a lot of people. But then you had other folks saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Right, rain it back, guys. Yeah, we're we're destroying the thing we were trying to protect. Yeah. And we, of course, are still having those same debates today. And and they, yeah, and it's and some of that architecture and stuff they did is so spectacular. Yeah, you know, still around now. Yeah, and um, I think about Gates Park and the Bob, mm. and that's this incredible cabin situation. It's beautiful, like infrastructure. Huh. It's way up if you if you go up where y'all went up the North Fork. Yep. you jump the hump over into this big park system. It's freezing cold in there. People mm. tried to homestead that actually at wow. one point. It's but, an amazing place. Yeah, I, I I'm very jealous I love of all that the time. part of your uh of your book too, the yeah. rafting part. Really cool trip, pack rafting and fly fishing in the Bob. Yeah. Um. Wow, that yeah. is a special, special place. And it's um and I and I, yeah. There's a lot here. I was gonna get you to read the very last page, but I'm not gonna do that because the 
that can be for the people who get the book, yeah. right? I don't, I don't, we're not giving, we're not doing any spoilers on it, you know, but the, the, your conclusions in, in, in Alaska, you know, um, there, there's some powerful stuff there that people can leave. They could put this book down and take away energized. Good. Um, and I was, uh, I was interested too. um, beyond that, I, I, I like the fact that it, that it ends in that massive landscape. The seems caribou. fitting. It yeah, does. It yeah. seems fitting. Yeah. And it's funny, we were talking earlier about how so many times we think that writers or artists or whatever have this like divine intervention and it flows through them and it's so right, easy. Right. So it wasn't like that at all for me for this book. It was, yeah. it was hard. It was a lot of days sitting at the blinking cursor like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Yeah. But I had one moment of, of that flow. It was, it, was, it was two in the morning and I wrote the final chapter in a flurry of like, I don't know, two hours nonstop wrote that last chapter. Yeah. It's, the, it's my favorite chapter. It's my favorite thing I've ever written. Yeah. It just, it just kind of poured out of me. It was like yeah. an emotional yeah. outpouring. Um, so I'm very proud of that. I was and I'm um, glad that you liked that. I never heard that, uh, that quote. I, I'm, I'm almost going to look it up. Um, of the, it's Peter, somebody who it's a it's a quote on hunting of intersecting the line. Oh yes, uh, yeah, the the great moment that only hunters know. Where, yeah, where uh, I'll let you read it, but I'm gonna have to find it. Give me be yeah, patient I, with me I'll, while you're looking for that. It is in a terrific collection of essays called The Hunter's Heart, which is edited by uh, David Peterson. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I know David Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And so that for anyone looking for another book, highly recommend that one. And within that, there's a there's an essay where he he talks about, I think it was an elk hunt, and he yeah. had this wonderful description of that moment right before the shot. And um, can you yeah. do you want you want to read it? Yeah, sure. It's just it's an, it's it's really hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me find where it is here on the page. Here it is. Pete Dunn, in a hunter's heart, describes these final seconds as. The great moment that only hunters know when all existence draws down to two points in a single line and the universe holds its breath and what may be and what will be meet and become one before the echo returns to its source. Whew. Finding the bull caribou in my scope, I squeezed the trigger. Sweet. <laughs> and that's how you use your quotes to uh, build your own work. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful stuff. Thank you. And I, that was, I don't know that. I didn't know that guy's work. It's a great essay. Yeah. I would recommend reading that. Yeah. And anything of Peterson's too. Yes. Lord, he was a seminal voice in elk hunting. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a book called Elk Heart. Elk Heart. Elk Heart. Yeah, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. And then, and then uh, oh gosh, is it Blood Sport or Blood? Uh, mm. I don't know this, the other one. He has another really yeah. good collection of his own essays that are all related to hunting. And, and of yeah. course, he's definitely, uh, he has strong opinions, which yep. some might not agree with, but he certainly has a lot of passion and, and a yeah. great writer. He's a powerful guy. Yes. Um and and he was he was he was doing it before anybody else. I Seems mean like to it. me. I mean he came of age in that. I, he's Vietnam age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he he was uh friends with Abby for a little bit there uh-huh. towards the end too. I think gotcha. he edited some collections of Abby's letters and things yeah. like that. Well, um so interesting guy. I have a um I had a question when you're you're talking about the Jeep rally in Moab. Mm, yeah. I actually hit that this year. <laughs> Did you? Uh, yeah, in April, I think. Yeah, yeah. And um I was and I was there was like six different languages being spoken at oh, the man. gas station. Yeah. Quite and the gathering. Was, yeah, and it was all these people though from um these people were from countries where such a thing would be absolutely unheard of. Right. Right. 
Um, and I, and I had the, it, I, I just, I love that chapter because I had the same impression. I go, okay, you got to get a grip, buddy, because these people are enjoying the hell out yeah. of this. And they're from countries who long ago have lost any concept of public lands and and public like access to go tear tear stuff right. up with a with a <laughs> monster with truck. Yeah. yeah, but um, did, are you familiar with Jim Styles stuff, the Canyon Zephyr? I don't think I am. Well, he was. He is the one. You should read Jim Styles. Look him up. Okay. Um, and uh, Canyon Country Zephyr. I think he's okay. a reporter in Moab. He's he's Edward Abbey. Years, okay, yeah, and he, um, he, he's like, yeah, the recreation in- industry is just as bad as the uranium industry, uh-huh. and um, and he makes it. He's he's very smart, yeah. So he makes a lot of sense. But you, you're finally, um, for me, I'm like, no, it's not as bad as the uranium industry. That's how. That's my personal take. I'm not here to judge Jim Styles because he's older than I am, and he's yeah. been there in the trenches for uh, forever. But um, Jim, is a, you should read his stuff. I'll check that out. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Oh, but I definitely, I mean, to that point, I found myself over and over, and I, and I felt this for years, and then I had to confront my own emotions and thoughts when I, while trying to make this, write this book, right? So I had to kind of cr- confront my own biases yep. and all of that. And as, I'm, as I'm, I can get so angry, yep. so frustrated with these things I'm seeing out there, disheartened, sure. pissed. It can ruin your good time. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But then I, I, I tr- have tried to get better at stepping outside of yep. my way of looking at these things or my way of enjoying these things and yep. think about think about where these other people are coming from or how they're in, engaging with the landscape and would I rather them not at all? Not because, because if, if, you know, if somebody wants to go out into a national forest with 18 kids and scream and hoot and holler and have a great time, maybe it kind of ruined my experience, what I thought I was going to yep. get out of this, but if they're having a good time right, and that 
leads the, to them appreciating these places someday, maybe they'll do something to keep them around. Every so, one of those kids might become the ultimate advocate. You never know. Yeah. Um, so, the guy, who, the guy, the guy or girl who fights it out. Yeah. So, so I'm, I've, I've constantly trying to remind myself that not everybody has to be just like me and how I enjoy these places. Right. Um, and, and there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a filter though. I try to pass it through. And I mentioned it here in the book somewhere. Um, when you're thinking about how to balance all these different ways of, of using and enjoying our public lands and all the various stakeholders, it can be hard to, it can be hard for me to sit here and say, no, this is the way it should be done. This yeah. is how I think it should be done. Right. And I'm right. I'm coming from my own perspective though. I'm coming right. from my own set of circumstances. I'm looking through my hunter's lens or whatever it might be. Um, how do you balance that with all these different stakeholders, all these different ideas? And the one thing that I think is helpful that I took from the past, all this research was taking the approach that Theodore Roosevelt always advocated for, which was always pass it through the lens of what's going to be best for the next generation and those to come. Gotcha. Pa- look at this situation. Look at this decision. Look at this controversy. Look at these opposing points of view and think about what that might mean 20 years from now or 30 yeah. years from now. Yeah. And if you can pass it through and it's going to keep this stuff around and keep it positive and viable, if we're going to make sure this is available for our children and their children's children, then that's yeah. probably right. Yeah. It's kind of like Aldo Leopold's yeah. quote when you're talking about, you know, if it tends to work with nature, it's probably right. If it yeah. tends to work against nature, it's probably wrong. Yeah. Well, I would say the same thing with public lands. If it tends to be positive for future generations, then we're probably erring in the right direction. Yeah. Got you. And I, I think that, uh, one of the things I, I I've got from a Stephen Pine, the fire historian, was um he said that the 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 Forest Service itself needs to kind of redefine itself in the wake of being a fire suppression agency or or and all this this stuff he said and and to build towards perhaps an ecological resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and that word is everywhere now, resilience, resilience. But it but it's not that it's just because it's used a lot don't mean it ain't great. Right. Um, yeah. And. To, to build those kind of um, ecosystem services, those ecological communities, yep. which also work on a, a huge number of levels. You can mm-hmm. still ride a mountain bike from it. You could still probably go monster trucking in part of it. Sure. You know, um, and James Pogue, who wrote Chosen Country about yeah. the Bundys. Yes. Yep. Um, he, he ends up in that book and in real life, of course, with the the book's nonfiction, but he's um, he gets to be friends with this guy who builds monster trucks. <laughs> And they go bang banging around on monster trucks sometimes for like, you know, 18 hours at a time. The guy's obsessed. Wow. And um, I talked to James about that, and I was just like, you know, is that your thing? You know, and he said, no, but it's his, and he's a friend of mine, and I got to see it. Yeah. And, and I, pre- I can appreciate his way of of this of pursuing this freedom. Yeah. It's, it's a tight one. Man, it, it's hard these days to do that because yeah. we're so surrounded. I mean— whether it be in the kind of digital social media world yeah. that so much of us are kind of sucked into now. You can be, I mean, it's said all the time now, but this echo chamber, yeah. it's really easy to get into our little zone, our little group of people, yeah. our little ecosystem, and, and never have to pull out of it and look at things from somebody else's perspective. Right. And that's so true when it comes to public lands. Right. So it almost takes like a proactive approach. You have to constantly have a little self-talk with yourself, say, hey, you know what? Take a step back. Yeah. Think about this from a different perspective. And I yeah. think it's a helpful thing. And I think yeah. it's probably the only way that we're going to be able to move this whole thing forward in a positive way. So we yeah. have to, whether it just be American politics in general or public lands. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. As with a that. people, we yeah. probably need to do a little more of that. Yeah. And and we don't live in a, in a, a, a dictatorship, you know, 
we don't live in a place where somebody can be so right and then impose their will on others. You know, we've chosen not to do that. Yeah, very true. Kind of uniquely in the world. Right. Um, and, and so when you choose that path, that's a difficult path. Mm-hmm. And you got to embrace that difficulty. You know, that thing you're talking about in, in writing this book and challenging your biases, yep. you know, that's a spiritual discipline I also can highly recommend <laughs> to people who, who want to write or want to do podcasts or want to do anything like uh, outside of, say, just roofing a house or or fixing a car, right? Yeah. If you want to do something that that is lar- in a, on a more abstract and larger level, that's the first thing you do is you challenge your biases, mm-hmm. and that can be one of the most interesting spiritual disciplines in my in my experience. Yeah. Well, anything that anything that's in this book, anything where where I have shared an idea or a suggestion or a, we need to do this, or we need to think about this, or this is something that we as a people are struggling, with, whatever it is, every one of those things are simply things that I'm struggling with right now and working yep. through right now. Gotcha. I mean, like this this book is simply a communication of my internal battles and challenges and, and trying to figure this all out myself. And and in many cases, I think they're things that are are happening all across the country. We're all yeah. battling with these same questions and yeah. inner turmoil. And, and, I, and it's there every day. I was listening to all that stuff. On, I, I don't have a smartphone or anything. I was just listening to regular radio. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just... Oh, it's it's so boring too, you know the process and all. But when in the NPR versus the Fox station versus right. all this stuff, and I have avoided that, yeah. not on ten- intentionally. I just it's not part of my life. Yeah, and I'm hoping to to I want to be informed, but I don't want to be drowned. Mm, yes, that's you the know. Trick. Um, but one of the things in in this and it's in your work here, and um, we have to know that. When we are over across the table with people who disagree with us on one thing or another, that we and they are acting in some sort of good faith. Yeah. And that has not always been the case with the privatization of public lands movement. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and we should understand that there are people who do not say what they mean and who will tell you falsehoods and who will couch their agenda in other things. Yeah, and that's and when it, the Ed Abbey approach has got to come out. And that's when you that's right. when righteous anger from, yeah. must 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 be sustained and applied, right? Yeah. I was um in in you have an incredible quote in there um where during the pushback against Teddy Roosevelt's um forest reserves mm. and whatnot, one western senator said we're <laughs> with Google-eyed, bandy-legged dudes from the east and sad-eyed, absent-minded professors and bugologists. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know that is the perfect that scorn, ridicule. Yeah. It's all it's the last bastion of like somebody who's like furious mm-hmm. and they're losing. And when I read that, I went and looked up Linda Beck, who was the CARP researcher at Malheur, huh. who was trying to restore, they want to restore the red band trout. Okay. And the CARP had muddied the water so much that they couldn't get any light through to foster the aquatic vegetation and the and the whole, um, whatever you call that, the food chain sure. that would, would allow them to restore the red band trout. It also was messing up the irrigation and the agriculture and all this stuff, right? So she was the carp researcher. And this is what Ron Bundy said in there. He said, yeah, this carp lady, this is part of what is destroying America. Hmm. And Ron didn't know any more 
about what was going on in that office in that research yeah. than I know about astrophysics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and so one of the things that on on many sides, I just I, I, willful and scornful ignorance. Mm-hmm. We can fight over process. Yep. If we can agree on goals, we can fight over method. But I wrote this when I was reading your book. But we cannot yield to ignorance yes. or messianic religious beliefs that will take us all over a cliff. Yeah, that's where we have to that we have to draw a line. Yeah, have, yeah, draw a line somewhere. Yep. It's, it's it's figuring out. It's it's getting people engaged in the process enough that they can start discerning between those two. That's right. Is a challenge. That's right. Uh, but once you get in there and people are in the arena and understanding yep. what's happening then you can start having those. I mean, you have to plant a, a flag on the hill at some point. Yep. And you have to, we all have to choose the sword we want to die on. Do you think if you explained what the carp lady did to Ryan Bundy that he would understand it? No. Well, maybe. I, mean, maybe. I wonder. But I think there's sometimes there will be people or groups that simply don't care. Right. Yes. Because they've, there are such, some, sometimes such strong ideological stances mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily supported by rational evidence. Right. But are simply because that's this, and I'm not saying a literal religion, but a figurative religion of yep. ideas yep. Uh, that if you present anything different, they'll just look at it as rubbish because right. it doesn't fit that worldview. Right. Just, you know, damn the evidence. Sure. Um, so but that's that, a challenge. And, and that's why you do armed rebellions. I mean, right. armed attacks instead right. of unarmed attacks because you're not right. there to learn about Right. The research being done. Well, and it's the same thing with, with like hunting. There's going to be some portion of the of the populace out there that's going to be vehemently anti-hunting no matter what. Right. And they're going to, no matter what conversation you would have with them or how you present it, they're never going to change their mind. They're never going to be willing to consider right. what we're doing or why we're doing or how we're doing it. Um, so in some cases, there's... It's it's like beating your head against the wall. There's no yeah. point sometimes with trying to convince that person. But there's always, or most often, there's a large middle ground yep. who is open to new ideas or, or rational evidence. Right. Um, and that's the audience I think we can can speak to and work with, and um, where there's opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that's what one one reason when I finished this book, I, it was there's there's a I don't know if it's in in yours, but it's just like. What we're talking about here is hope. Yeah. And um and the idea that an informed citizenry will often it'll be excruciatingly slow maybe, mm. but will often make the right decisions. Yeah. And that's it, what we're that's what we're working on. That's what you're that's what you're doing in this this adventure book. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have hope. You have to have faith. I mean, uh I I was just thinking about this the other day, uh Von Schenard always says that the only cure for depression is action. Action, yeah. And I think that's so true. Yeah. And so there's two ways you can go about it. You can look at this world of wounds, as Leopold called it, whether it be ecologically or with the attacks on public lands, and you can either look at it from the perspective of, gosh, this stuff keeps getting attacked, gets worse and worse, the, the, the sky is falling down around us, and you can throw your hands up and say, what can I do? And you can get depressed about it or just turn off stop paying attention or you can take the opposite approach which is saying yeah there's a lot of things going on i can't control it all but i can do something right i I can all i can control is my actions and my decisions and i'm going to choose to do every damn thing i can 
to to be on the side of the good, on the side yeah. of the positive, on yeah. the side of the action. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a line in here that I found from Theodore Roosevelt, and I'll misquote it, but he says something along the lines of Theodore Roosevelt um, always preferred uh, the man that took two steps to the man that theorized about the 200th. The yeah, I got that out um, of your book. Sure, I wrote that down. I thought, actually. That, was, I thought <laughs> yeah. that was great. Yeah. It's, it, it's one thing to think about it, and it's one thing to uh, theorize, but do something. Do yeah. one little thing. Yeah. Um, and that will lead to another and another. Um, but the best antidote is action. Yeah. And I, I, and, and, and to have a somewhat of a thick skin. Mm, yeah. Need yeah. that too. I need mean, some optimism, need some thick skin. Yeah. Um, one of the things I kept, I've been noticing amongst, I have a large group of folks that I keep in touch with. I mean, I, I've been blessed that way, you know? Um, and, I, uh, there's a, there's, there's a feeling of that things are so broken that you, you can't do nothing about it. Oh, it's so corrupt. Right. But actually the United States, we're falling a little bit, but it actually ranks fairly low on the international corruption index. Right. It's you all actually, relative, I guess. Yeah. And you, <laughs> yeah, to, to say uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo or Mobutu yeah. Seko and all. Yes. But even, <laughs> even amongst the upper levels, we, we have a fairly good rating. Yeah. And so that, excuse for apathy is not actually valid. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's funny. I, I certainly can't being relatively new to the arena myself, you know, I'm only 32 years old. Um, I don't want to claim to say that I know what I'm talking about and all these things like this, but, right. but trying to learn from those who came before you, yep. um, it seems to be the case that, um, that yeah, you have to, keep trying. You have to try to stay positive. Right. At least that's the approach I'm certainly going to try over the next 32 years of my well, life. Well, you've done an tremendous amount of information gathering, research, reading on people who actually took the first step yeah. and accomplished incredible stuff. I mean, there's several of these things in here of, of, of John F. Lacey, mm -hmm. who's a personal hero of mine, even though I'm from Alabama and was my, my family was on the Confederacy side, right? right? But John F. Lacey was from West Virginia. Mm -hmm. They pioneered Iowa he yeah. joined the army at age 20. He was captured at Blue Mills, the Battle of Blue Mills, and then paroled and went immediately back to the army wow. and, and then stayed in until the final blast. And then he's the one that wrote the Antiquities Act. Yeah. So sometimes, and I, I think I've said this on a podcast before, sometimes I see these lesser beings who have, have experienced no fire that we know of trying to attack the creations and, and the, the accomplishments of John F. Lacey. And I, I just, it's very hard to hold on to your it's objectivity upsetting. at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, it, it can be, and, and I'm sure every decade from here on out, I got to believe I'm going to find myself having those kinds of moments yep. more and more often probably. You can remember John F. Lacey. Right. And you yeah. go, what would, what, what would he do? Like, like what, what's happened here? Eight-term Republican senator from Iowa. Yeah. You know, um, in public service his whole life, in 1902 joins the Boone and Crockett Club. I wrote all this down earlier because I just was like, I, it's, in your book, there are, as we spoke earlier, and I know we got to get wrapping this up, but there are doors in this book, the great writers, great thinkers, and there is a, there is a clear portrait of how Americans have achieved fantastic things yeah. over and over. Yeah. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. If, if anything, I came out of this whole project from 
all all the all the reading, all the research, everything I try to dive into to just better place myself in the now, I came away with with absolute optimism and inspiration yep. and hope because uh, they did it then, we can do it now. Yeah. Um, they laid the blueprint for how to do it. Yep. They they showed us it's possible. Yep. It's not going to be easy, as, as Randy always likes to say. It's not easy. It's not convenient. Yep. Uh, but it's worth it. Yep. That's and, one um, of my favorite quotes of Randy's, and I, and I I think about this all the time. Is conservation is not convenient. Hmm. And yeah. and that's it's a choice. Yep. You know. Um. And there's a there's there's winners and losers and all of it. But in the end, the the what we were talking about was was to to maintain the integrity of something that we've inherited. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah, this is a hell of a uh, torch that was passed on to us. It was. It's a heavy burden. It's a, you have that in the book, the responsibility mm-hmm. element of it. Yeah, I feel that a lot. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so lucky to have what we have now, and it's. I think it's it's important to remember that it is a responsibility now on our shoulders Yeah, to keep that going. And then after, absolutely, after becoming a father, I yep. felt that a whole lot yep. more personally. And I've got a second one arriving in two months, yeah. another son coming. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. And that just... It makes this unbelievably personal. It's not just about my own, what I'm going to be doing for the next 50, 60 years, right. but it's what's the world they're going to grow up in. Right. Um, the kids have, and I'm only just learning this now, but they've got a way of really changing the timeline you think on and how you they look do. at the world. They do. Um, it also, uh, it explodes the concept that you're the most important thing on earth. Yeah. And in my experience, I tell people that, that raising these children with my wife who was, was really good at it. I, I was a work in progress. <laughs> um, they, it's been the largest like adventure of my life. Yeah. And, um, they're, they're big now, but they, it, it, it the adventure continues whether uh-huh. you, whether you want it to or not, yeah. you know, and like in, in your, in your book, you're talking about like adventure is not really comfortable. It's like gallons of sweat and, yeah. and running out of water and, yeah. and falling and, and having the sewer plug come yeah. out of the AT, <laughs> uh, out of the, out of the camper. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. some bumps along the road. <laughs> That's for sure. But it's, um, it, this is what I wanted to pass on and, and you, you'll do it because you're, I mean, you're, you're deep in the arena with this. And and it's it's a spiritual discipline to write this book. It's a spiritual discipline to be a father. And you, man, we've got so my my kids and I have, and my wife, my my kids and I especially, they hunt with me. And this is something that I, it's an obligation. There's no way I could repay it. Yeah, I can't even begin to repay it, but I can try. Yeah. I can act. It's yeah. It's all you can yeah. do is, is act. Yeah. And best. I just have um. So what's now? I'll quit. <laughs> but what's got, what's next for you? Well, um, you know, uh, doing a lot of cool things here with Mediator. Uh, actually, been working on a project here most recently called the Back Forty, in which I'm looking at the flip side of all this, which is some of the the issues related to private land conservation, which has been a really interesting thing to learn about. Um, but I want to write more books too. Yeah, that's. I think that's when I'm when I'm 75 and looking back. I hope I've written. Um, a bunch of books that can stand the test of time. A body of work. Um, yeah, a body of work. I, I loved this process. This is the, of everything I've been blessed to be able to do, I've, nothing has been harder, but nothing has been more fulfilling. Gotcha. I'm more proud yeah. of this than anything else I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would love to continue to explore these types of issues, issues related to my love for the outdoors, wild animals and wild places, and and what we can do to keep them around and keep them healthy and sustainable. So, I don't know exactly what those stories will be. I don't know exactly 
where they'll t- take place or where they'll take me. Um, but that's what I want to do when I grow up yeah. is, is share those stories and share those lessons um, and hopefully leave a positive impact. Well, I, I think guess. you're in it. Well, you I, know? I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> but I, um, and I'll be interested to say, I'll read whatever you, you write. I mean, it's this, this, is a, this is a hell of a freaking launch. Well, I, I can't tell you how much that means because you've been an inspiration for me. I've read your work for so, so many years and I've always looked at, at the things that you've put out there to the world. Like, man, he's got it. You're, you're conveying, you're getting across this sometimes hard to digest information in a way that is emotional, in a way that fired me up, in a way that helped me take the next step. Yeah. Um, you were one of those people that helped with this book too. So, yeah. so thank you. Well, I appreciate I, that. I, and, and it's, it's written like you, you, all of that stuff was produced and, and it was produced with beating your head against the, the desk, all of it. But it, it, it comes from that same well of like absolute passion. You're yeah. like, you're like, this is just too incredible. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I just love, 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 love these places. Yeah. Love what we're able to do. We're right. the luckiest people in the world as far as I'm concerned. That's the way I feel too, man. Yeah. Well, Mark, I will, um, uh, t- they can check out people that want to get more can do the Wired to Hunt podcast. Yep. Um, and you, uh, you still, are you running a blog still? So now all of my articles live on the Meat Eater website. Okay. So that's all at themeateater.com and yeah, the Wired to Hunt podcast um, and the books available on Amazon and where books are available. Right on. And then the book is That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. Thanks for doing it, man. Hey, thank you, Hale. I yeah. can't tell you how much, how much I appreciate it. This has been fun. Thank you. You bet. This has been uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Podcast and Blast. I'm Hal Herring. We're signing off for this one, but we'll be back in a week or 10 days. And meantime, uh, check out backcountryhunters.org. Get some more podcasts there and see what we're up to. And uh, also, I'm, I'm going to be out there wandering around, hunting and fishing, wearing out a pair of boots. And I uh, hope you'll be doing the same thing. We're living in God's pocket. We need to celebrate that. Never forget it. And get out there and, li- and live it and enjoy it. Hey, thanks a lot, everybody. Talk soon. And that's a wrap for me, too. Thank you all for listening to this unique version of the Wired Hunt podcast. And a big thanks to Hal and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers for hosting me on their show, sharing with us with their audience. Um, Hopefully, they all enjoyed this as much as I did, and I hope you did, too. I will give you one more uh, ask if you haven't yet. Would love it if you could pick up a copy of That Wild Country for yourself or a friend or a family member. I put my heart and soul into this. I hope you can see that and feel it and hear it as I talk about it and as you read the book. I hope you find it valuable, that you'll learn something from it, that you enjoy it, and um, that maybe it can give us all a little push to do a little bit more. I know that in writing this book for myself, it gave me a huge kick in the butt to try to do a better job of, of walking the walk. It's not always easy or convenient, but uh, as Randy Newberg has reminded me in the past, it is always worth it. So with that, my friends, I will let you go. I hope the beginning to 2020 has been a good one for you, and I hope it's a wonderful, wonderful year that you've got laid out ahead of you. So until next time, thank you for listening, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. 
Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 